We are this morning continuing our study of uh, Galatians, picking up actually the same passage that we looked at last week. If you have your Bible, turn, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. You're using the Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, that's on page 1239, page 1239. Now last week, as I said, we're looking at the same passage this week that we did last week. Last week we looked at kind of the darker side of life, uh, the fruit of the flesh, as it were. This week, uh, though we're looking at the same passage, our topic is actually a far more difficult one. Despite its difficulty, however, I hope in, in the end, I hope it will be a more beautiful picture, a more attractive picture for us. Uh, the passage is not difficult to understand, per se. It's relatively straightforward. But I suspect the picture that Paul gives us here will ultimately be far more challenging to us than many more technically difficult passages could be. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit, yes, to explain His Word to us, but more than that, we need the Spirit to root that Word deep in our hearts, to transform our lives by it. That's why we're here, that the Word of God would be rooted in our lives. So let's, if you're able, please stand now while I pray and remain standing as I read from Galatians chapter 5. Pray with me. Need your spirit desperately. We are not able to understand your word, and even if we could understand it, we are not able to change our own hearts. So, Lord Jesus, give us your spirit that we might see your truth, but be transformed, that we would be made anew in the image of your Son, that your spirit would be at work. Your word in our hearts and growing it until it overflows. Let your name be praised because of the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The same week, Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I told you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the of joy, peace, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have its passions and its desires. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Do better. Be better. You've probably come across that phrase, those sentences in our modern society, particularly online, probably somewhat regularly. It has become a common thread in our world. Do better. Be better. It is the mantra of the religion of worldly morality. If you violate the paradigms accepted by the culture, even if you've only done so through ignorance, 
You're reminded of the accepted morality and told, do better, be better. What is the difference between shame and guilt? How do you distinguish those two concepts? I'll be honest, there's quite a lot of semantic overlap there, so much so that when I I looked up the dictionary definitions this week, they could really, in a sense, seem to be fully synonymous. Shame and guilt, there's so much overlap. They're basically synonyms. Both deal with the feelings that spring up as a result of wrong. together and so they become entwined in our minds virtually impossible to separate as we experience them shame and guilt but there is a distinction and it's an important distinction guilt what you feel the sense that you have been wrong the sense that you are in the wrong what you feel when what you have done is wrong shame is the feeling that you get, excuse me, what you feel when who you are is wrong. Guilt is what you feel when what you've done is wrong. Shame is what you feel when who you are is wrong. Not a wrong action as with guilt, but a wrong identity. You feel your very being coming under judgment. Do better, guilt. Be better, shame. It says right up that your wrong actions spring from a wrong core. We hold to a reformed theology, a reformed understanding of how the Lord works, which means that your wrong actions spring from a wrong core identity makes total sense to us, right? We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we have a sin nature that we inherited from our father Adam. However, As a pastor I sometimes read pointed out recently, the ubiquitous demand to do better, be better, is hollow and impotent if not undergirded by grace and humility. Separated from the gospel, such a challenge will discourage, diminish, divide, and embitter. It will not transform. It has no power. Given our topic this morning, I expect some of you at least will... Uh, be tempted to hear me say very little more than do better, be better. Because there is a piece of this passage that is quite simply a call to transformation. It is a call to do different things, to be a person shaped by a different core identity. A call to a life transformed by the gospel itself that looks radically, impossibly different, almost indescribably different. Now, I hope that you will come away from this passage encouraged with a new vision of the beauty of Christ and the glory of living out your faith in tangible ways over the long haul. But if I miss, even a little bit, if I miss, it will be very easy for you to hear, do better, be better. As I say, my hope today is not to lay a burden on you, Christian, either heavy or light. My hope is to give you a new vision for the beauty of what Christianity should be by the grace of Christ in it. So I guess what I'm saying is don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a useful phrase, right? 
Anyway, as I said, last, uh, we're, we're covering some of the same ground this week that we did last week, uh, but with a very different focus. Last week, we talked about the works of flesh, the sin that so often infests our lives. And on the one hand, that is not a fun topic to think about. The ugliness of sin is, well, ugly. It is much easier simply, let's just not think about that. Let's just brush that aside. We're not going to talk about that. Is at least for the person that, who has to preach it, talking about sin is far easier. It's way easier to talk about the sinfulness of sin than it is to talk about the glory of holiness. Why? Because we're all intimately familiar with sin. We're all really familiar with the merry-go-round of New Year's resolutions and promises to God to be different. Lord, only do this for me, then I'll never do that again, or I'll always do this in the future. We're familiar with that. We is a preacher then is simply to show you that thus and such sin has roots that grow through each of our lives that this too is not just a sin but your sin you may not not much like the conclusion that you own that particular sin but i don't have to convince you what sin looks like sin is a part of our lives and we're intimately familiar with it this is not the case when we turn to the fr- from the fruit of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. Now my task is to talk about something which is almost wholly outside of our experience, something to which we have been called, certainly, something in which we will participate, even if not fully or perfectly in this life, but something that is pretty much outside of our experience. And Christian, you are called to a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, and that life is, in a very real sense, otherworldly. Now, science fiction notwithstanding, other worlds are notoriously difficult to imagine or explain. They're outside of our experience, and so generally what we do is we extrapolate from our experience and change one or two things, but it's basically the same. And that's why when you, if you ever watch science fiction movies or read books or whatever, you'll find that most other worlds are really basically Earth, just with a couple of minor changes. Basically the same world. The new life of the Christian is truly different across the board. So bear with me as I struggle to work through this. Walter Pater, Pater, in his 1880s novel, Marius the Epicurean, which is set in Rome in the, of the 150s AD, uh, Walter Pater described the spirit of the new Christian society as it would appeared to a pagan in that day. language, so let me clarify as, as we kind of go through this quote. He says, as if by way of a due recognition of some immeasurable divine condescension manifest in a certain historic fact, that is, based on a recognition of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as it happened in history, based on that, Christianity's influence was felt most especially at those points which demanded some sacrifice of oneself for the weak, aged, for little children, and even for the dead. And then... For its constant outward token, its significant manner, it issued, it did itself, in a certain debonair grace, a certain mystic attractiveness, a courtesy. Here it is. Christianity is characterized, 
even defined in the Christian as a divine self-sacrificing, sacrificing for those least able to repay, an outward-focused, significant, debonair, mystic, attractive, courteous grace. So let's be characteristics of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, that the pagans around us are overwhelmed by grace and mercy, the self-sacrifice for those least able to repay. Let's be known for that, that they might be one without a word. Now, certainly we must use words. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We must be prepared to use words must be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. But if our lives are characterized by peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then our words will carry far greater weight. And if not, then not. If our life is not characterized by those traits, then whatever words we proclaim about the grace of Jesus Christ will feel flat because they are a disconnect from our lives now i I suspect you all probably agree that this is the goal but how do we do that how do we get there we all want to be there right we want our lives characterized by the fruit of the spirit how do we get there do we just keep these things constantly in the front of our minds so that we will remember to do them is it really just buckle down try harder We believe that we are saved wholly by grace, that our justification before God is accomplished wholly by the blood of Christ shed in our place on the cross and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. As has been famously said, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. We are saved by grace alone, and this is not of our doing, lest anyone should boast. But what then? What comes next? After we are justified, after declared righteous we recognize that there is a big discrepancy between the righteousness that has been declared about us and our actual lives we still sin is sanctification is that something that i do in response to my justification does the fact that i still sin mean that i'm failing in my sanctification Or does it mean that I was never actually justified, never actually saved? What do we do with these questions? The Westminster Confession, or Shorter Catechism rather, defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Now there's a lot compressed into a fairly short sentence there, right? It's a whole lot of information. First, it is the work of of God's free grace. Sanctification is as much God's work as justification is. It's all Him. You don't do it yourself. You don't cooperate with God's grace to accomplish sanctification any more than you did in justification. It is the grace of the Holy Spirit freely given to accomplishes both justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification and anything good that we receive from Jesus. If it depends on you, me too, by the way.
But second, where justification is an act of God's grace, sanctification is a work of God's grace. That is, it takes time. It's a process. It is not accomplished in an instant. Our experience of sanctification is one of choosing moment by moment to pursue what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in us. We are renewed. We are remade in the image of God. We are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but part of the work of the Holy Spirit is repairing the faculties in us so that we might choose moment by moment to kill sin in us, to live out, to pursue righteousness in our lives. And part of His work Ensuring that we do choose to kill sin in us and pursue righteousness in our lives. Live out righteousness. This is what we wrap our heads around. As I said, it is a holy mystery. It's both and. But I think this becomes a little bit more clear when we consider that Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, refers to these nine characteristics as fruit rather than as they very are actions. The question is this. We live in an area that produces a lot of fruit. How does a tree make fruit? How does a bush make fruit? Does that plant think to itself, hmm, I need to make some apples. Let me focus on the appleiest thing that I know of. Let me skin of apples and the meat of apples and the seeds of apples until I fully and completely understand apples. Let me work and focus on apples until the apples grow. Of course not. The tree simply does what it is and apples happen. It is not fundamentally different with us. The fruit that we produce is not the result of effort and study of the fruit. It's the result of being who we are in Christ. Just as the tree doesn't focus on making fruit, but rather focuses on absorbing nutrients from the ground and the rain and the sun, so I, you and I don't primarily focus on producing the fruit of the Spirit. Rather, we focus instead on absorbing nutrients from the Word and the sacraments and from prayer, from the means of of grace. And as you do, the fruit will be produced because it's who you are. Almost automatically. And yet not wholly automatically, right? Because verse 17 and 18 are still in fact in this passage. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This almost seems to make the Christian life something that happens to us instead of something that we participate in. There's a war going on between the flesh and the spirit, and you're the battlefield. You're not one of the battlers. You're not one of the warriors. You're the field on which the battle is being fought. It seems almost to say that you have no say in what happens. The flesh and the spirit are at war, and whoever wins claims you and your actions. In all honesty, people have used exactly that argument to claim that they're not responsible for their typically wicked 
actions. It was the flesh at work in me. It's not my fault. Here's the argument. The Spirit is referred to, that is, we believe the Spirit is, that is referred to here is the Holy Spirit, something external to us that is acting in our lives. Therefore, and it's spoken about the exact same way that the flesh is, so therefore the flesh must also be something external to us that is acting on us. All the, the, the terrible things that I've done were what the flesh worked in me, pushed me to do. It's not my fault. Basically, the argument comes down to, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Now, we would rightly dismiss this sort of foolishness out of hand. But on what basis? On what grounds do we dismiss that argument? Because the reality of this section of Galatians is that the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh are you the same way. But that isn't because the flesh is some non-native some third party acting on you rather it's because the spirit referred to in this passage is not the holy spirit directly we'll explain that in a minute Uh, these two terms the flesh and the spirit are in this passage synonymous with as paul has said in other passages the new man and the old man Uh, the the new nature and the old nature they are descriptions of a whole set of Feeling, speaking, acting, which characterize either the reprobate heart, the flesh, or the redeemed heart, the spirit. Now, the new man or the spirit here obviously cannot happen apart from the Holy Spirit of God, right? You don't have a new heart, a redeemed heart. You don't have a new man unless the Holy Spirit's work in you. So there is a connection to the Holy Spirit. But what, as far as what Paul is directly referring to, it is, he's referring to that complex set of thoughts and emotions and actions and, and whatever else that make up the new man created in you by the Holy Spirit. As one older commentator put it, it is that frame of thought and affection which is produced by the Holy Spirit's agency through the belief of the truth as it is in Jesus. If that's the case, what's the war going on here? You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. There's no middle ground, right? There's no third way. What's being described in 17 and 18? What's going on there? Here's the reality. If you're not a Christian, then you have only the flesh. There's no war. You have only the old man, and there's no conflict going on. You are only controlled by the old man. If you're a Christian in glory, in that day, in the next life, when we are finally freed from this life, if you're a Christian in glory in the life to come, you have only the Spirit, and there's no war, because your life is wholly controlled then, or will be controlled then, by the Spirit of Christ. The spirit, the new man that has grown in us. For the Christian today, in this life, we have both remnants of the old man still at work in us and the growing new man growing in us. Now certainly the spirit, the new man, cannot exist apart from the work of God's spirit in us. Thus, to walk in the spirit is to act like spiritual persons, to live habitually under the influence of the faith of Christ And those 
dispositions those actions which it naturally inspires. As that older commentator put it, deliver yourselves up to the native force of those new views and affections, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The best way of opposing the criminal biases of our is to yield ourselves up to the practical influence of that new and better mode of thinking and feeling into which we are brought by faith in the gospel. This will put a more effectual check on the desires of the flesh than the most rigid observance of Mosaic ceremonies. External ceremonies have no power to change your behavior. Your strength of will and your intention to be better and do better has no power to transform your life. The Holy Spirit has to change your heart first, and that grows outward into fruit. You cannot apply fruit to a tree and have a tree come to life from the fruit. What are these new views and affections, though? What is the new and better mode of thinking and feeling? Paul gives us this exceptional list that you're probably very familiar with, right, in verses 22 and 23. Nine virtues that as the Christian submits to the Lord and pursues the means of grace, these nine virtues begin to define his life. Again, not perfectly in this life, but enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, it's significant that the first thing mentioned in this list is love. In a very real sense, as one writer put it, Paul might well have placed a period at the word love and moved on to the conclusion of the letter. For love is not merely the first among equals in this listing, but rather the source and fountain from which all other graces flow. The source and fountain from which all other graces flow. Now, you may know that Uh, In Greek, there are four different words that are translated as love in English, describing kind of different aspects of our loves. Uh, It will probably not surprise you that this one, the word here, is the highest form of love, agape. C.S. Lewis described in, in his book on this topic, The Four Loves, he described agape this way. He said, God, who needs nothing, loved into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and protect them, uh, excuse me, perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseen, or should we say seeing, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture and arms as it is after time for breath's sake hitched up this is the diagram of love himself the inventor of all loves love this love self-sacrificial giving itself for the best good of the one loved with no thought of recompense or reward indeed with no possibility of recompense or reward this love is the defining characteristic of those who belong to christ This love is the defining characteristic of those who are in Christ because it is the defining characteristic of self. As Eugene Peterson put it, love is not what we do after we get the other things done if we have any energy left over. Love is what we do, period. 
It is not how we work. It is our work. Everything else, all the other virtues listed here, everything else flow from this head. The love of God poured out on us and in us and through us into the world. This is the defining characteristic of the Christian. This is the type of tree you are. You are a love tree. The fruit of the Holy Spirit of God that He is bringing to full ripeness in you is this love that finds its fullest expression in these other virtues. And if this love is your defining characteristic in Christ, it cannot help but affect every area of your life, inward or outward, vertically or horizontally. The rest of this list includes some things that primarily have a vertical focus. Joy, peace, and patience are how we respond to the Lord in our lives, though those attitudes certainly overflow in how we interact with each other, right? It is primarily directed at the Lord. It also, this list also includes some virtues that primarily have a horizontal focus. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are more about how we respond to the people in our lives and around us. Though, of course, they will never happen at all apart from the vertical relationship that we have with the Lord. But all of them. Vertical or horizontal, inward or outward, all of them point back to the one central thing. The primary defining characteristic, love. The love, the self-sacrificial love of Christ for his people. And this love is not primarily an emotion, right? This is kind of how our culture thinks about love. It's, it's that warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you're around somebody you like a lot. That's not what this is talking about. That comes as a result, perhaps, of this love. But it is not the nature of that love. It is not primarily an emotion, though it often brings emotions along with it. Rather, it is primarily an action or a set of action, a choice or a set of choices to give yourself away, to prioritize those you love over yourself. Against such things, there is no law. Indeed, Such things are the very definition of the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. What would it look like if we who claim Christ were so defined by this sort of love that this was what we were known for by the watching world? It would be if this truly was our central defining character trait. How glorious to be in a community of people all love each other. All seeking to sacrifice for each other. For the best good of each other. What an attractive picture of Jesus' love that would be to those who are outside. We would have people beating down our doors to get in. Of course, in a sense, this is a description of glory. This is a description of what life will be in that day. We will not see this lived out perfectly in this life because every Christian has some remnant of the old man, the 
warfare going on that prevents us from living this out perfectly. Warring, the old man warring with the new man in us. Sin clings so closely and hinders us, drags at us. Christian, the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And He has planted these virtues in you through Christ. Nurture them. It won't be quick. Anytime you plant a garden, it takes months or years before fruit is produced. Nurture them. Nurture these virtues. From strife and jealousy and anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and on and on. All that the old man is so drawn to. Flee from that. Don't just flee from. Flee to. Flee to the love of Christ. Pursue it. Defined, be defined by it. Eyes on Christ. On His love. His lived for you on his death died in your place fix your eyes on his resurrection which if you are his you will share let the love of christ flow into you and through you and so shape you that you cannot but be changed by it christian you are an alien in this life and in this world you truly are worldly not let yourself be conformed to the world, to the old man, to the flesh. Conform yourself instead to the gospel, to the Lord, to the new man. As indeed the Holy Spirit is conforming you to the image of Christ. Love as you have been loved. And in so doing, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is the impetus for the fruit of the Spirit in us. It is a vital and potent connection to the one who loved us and enables us to live this out. He will do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that Though the old man is at war in us, yet we know the, the war has been lost for him and, and you have conquered it and it is just the last gasp kicking in our lives. Give us grace to nurture the virtues that you've planted in us, the fruit that you have planted in us. Give us grace to focus on your word and on the sacraments and on prayer that we might receive your grace it. And as we focus on you, on your face and your glory, Lord, we pray that you would so work in us and nourish us and feed us that the fruit would be impossible to deny, impossible to ignore. Change us, transform us from the inside out that we might produce much fruit. That we might be pleasing to you that we might be an aroma of life to those who are dying who desperately need you give us clear eyes to see where we are still feeding the old man where we are still putting up with his shenanigans give us grace to see our sin and repent 
And give us grace as well, Father. Give us grace and strength by Your Spirit at work in us that we might nourish the new man. That we might walk by the Spirit and be changed by Your Holy Spirit at work in us. Let Your name be praised and transform us individually and as a corporate body, transform us so that we live out Your grace. So that we are an attractive grace-filled, humility-filled community where your gospel is plainly seen. And as you do that in us, we pray that you would bring those who need to hear, those who need to experience your love, who are broken and hurting, and give us grace to love them well, even at the cost of our entire lives. Glorify Yourself in us as You transform us in the image of Your Son. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.